Hello and welcome to the podcast of the Roy Dennis Wildlife Foundation, based in the Highlands of Scotland. Normally, we record in the field, hands-on conservation with Roy and his team as they work on the restoration of species at home and abroad. But sometimes there's room just to sit back and talk about how our bird populations have got to where they are today. Last week, I mentioned in passing that Roy has been involved in sea eagle reintroduction since 1968. And one of the people who's known him for all that time, and more, is John Love, himself responsible for a very early project to restore the white-tailed eagle to Scotland. To do it, he spent 10 years on the remote Hebridean island of Rum. You um, went exiled on Rum. I went with a rucksack and left with a, a house full of furniture, <laughs> a wife and a dog. <laughs> and a successful project. And a successful project. So, just weeks after the release of six white-tailed eagle chicks on the Isle of Wight, chicks moved to England from nests in Scotland, we look back at the reintroduction projects which brought them there, talking to Roy and John Love about the time when the birds were new to almost everyone in Scotland. And this journalist phoned up and said, oh, I believe you've got the new sea eagles, because I come up and take a photo. I said, yeah, OK then, he said, but any chance of getting a photo of one of the chicks perched on your finger. <laughs> I said, no, they're about three feet tall, for God's sake. The sea eagle had been absent from Scotland since the last one was shot in 1918. So where did the idea for their return come from and who made it happen? There was an attempt in 1958 in Glenet with three eagles. And then in 1968 on Fair Isle with Roy and George Waterston. And George, I think, was a cousin of Pat Sandeman's. That's right. And then Roy was involved in getting me involved in rum. Those early birds with Pat Sandeman and George. Pat was a tremendous bird protectionist as well. And he brought at least one and possibly more golden eagles from Norway. They were being persecuted. So he was finding money to kind of release them. And that's how the sea eagles came. There's a word that they were going to kill these birds. I see. So you actually you were saving them from Norway yeah. and then putting them to good use here. Yeah. So where did the original and idea And one of the best things about the Ferrar one, which in the end was unsuccessful, although we learned techniques, it was John's project that was a successful one. But I think one of the greatest things about the Ferrar one was it resulted in the Norwegian government changing the protection mm. yeah. and finally protecting sea eagles in Norway. Mm-hmm. So the project had it a was, bigger yeah, impact. It was one of the last countries in Europe to protect sea eagles, Norway. And that's why we got the birds from there, because there was such a high density of them at the time, although they were still persecuted. So the first project really was Fair Isle? Yes, it was mm-hmm. very small. It was four. And I find old writings where I wrote to George and said, one bird had left and gone to Orkney and that we should go down and catch it and bring it home and that next year we should get four for Farrell and four for Shetland probably Sumberhead but of course by that time there were so many people uh, kind of the top figures in ornithology who just were against reintroductions mm-hmm. Why were reintroductions not approved of? They were just kind of thought as fiddling around and that you know we wanted our nature to be pure of that so that quite often the the scientific documentation of a species going extinct was more important 
and getting it written in the ornithological journal then suddenly say we're going to do something about it and we're going to get animals in and and build that population so is that something you saw in each other that you both recognized you were people who just wanted to get it done particularly Roy I mean if if you want to get it done do it and there wasn't a lot of consultation in those days but one of the, my interests was going back through the old history of this species which was dead common it was more common than golden eagles back then at one time and suddenly because golden eagles persisted into the first world war and lived in remote mountain areas they didn't suffer from persecution so much the sea eagles were coastal and got this easily poisoned because they were scavengers as much as anything uh, that they became extinct it was through Roy that I got the job in Rum and I was sent there and Norway for two weeks for um, sent to Rum for six weeks <laughs> which ended to ten years it ended up in <laughs> ten years yeah. was that your choice? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You went um, exiled on I Rum. went with a rucksack and left with a, a house full of furniture, <laughs> a wife and a dog. <laughs> and a successful project. And a successful project. But what was living on Rum for 10 years like? I mean, it was, there weren't many people there. More than now. All the houses were occupied. There were probably about 35 people or thereabouts, and there were 13 kids in the school. They were all employees of the Nature Conservancy Council, except for the school teacher and some research students on Red Deer or Geology. Rum became a national nature reserve, one of the first ones in Scotland back in 1957. And the owner had more or less run it as his own private reserve and some bit of shooting estate or something. But it was really in 1975 when the Nature Conservancy wanted another excuse for keeping rum on as a national nature reserve, that they thought of the Sea Eagle project again in the middle of the former stronghold of the species. And there weren't that many uh, seabirds around, but enough for them to feed on. One of Roy's birds on Fair Isle died from fulmers spitting oil Mm. all over it. And there weren't many fulmers on rum, and there was a deer, there were wild goats. Um, It was open, very rough ground, but they were experimenting with planting native trees in places. So it was a great place. I wandered all the hills, um, sort of looking for the sea eagles when we released them, and looking at the shielings and the ruins and everything. And... I loved it. But it also fitted, John, with your great love of kind of folklore and history yeah. and mm-hmm. Gaelic and everything mm-hmm. and music. So, And also, you know, John's other <coughs> great triumph was to get rid of the anglicised name of rum mm-hmm. so that when we started that project, it used to be spelled R-H-U-M. And John, single-handedly, really, got it changed back to R-U-M. You see, I would have assumed the other way around. I thought R-H-U-M was the Gaelic spelling. No, no. Well, well, where did that come from, then? It was the owner at the time, who was a Lancashire industrialist, who inserted the H so as not to get confused with the drink, I suspect, <laughs> and bullied the post office <laughs> to accept that. And Those were the days stuck. when you could bully the post office yeah. into changing things yes. just because you were a lad. Exactly. Well, maybe yeah. they still exist. Yeah. Know. Mm-hmm. Now, were the techniques used on rum groundbreaking? Would they be familiar now for people who've released them on the Isle of Wight? If they went back to rum, would they say, oh, yes, that's, that's how we did it? We did it on rum, basically on how Roy 
did it on Fair Isle and we've since improved it a lot and phase two that I wasn't so involved in at Loch Marie but Roy was they'd improved the captive facilities and the way it was handled and in the subsequent introduction similarly so I think the main thing we did was we put them together <coughs> in, the, in the cage because yeah. when we first did it we thought they might kill each other and so we kept them separate but we found that we could put three birds in one cage and they acted like a little family and we just felt that was more natural and uh, that they establish relationships better so the whole idea of these projects is if you see an idea that looks more useful then go for it so you could look at the Isle of Wight now it's basically the same as we've done before but now we have such fantastic CCTV data you can see what the birds are doing at any time of the day and night and it's recorded and you see what the birds do when they leave. And those were not available to us in those days. And how does that compare with what you did on rum? I was the only person that went up to the cages and fed them each day. And we didn't encourage um, visitors up there much. Uh, whereas when Roy built the cages on uh, Loch Marie, there was a blank wall at the back and they were fed through a patch and the birds never saw humans at all. It was better to keep them away from human contact as much as possible. We got the licenses every year for 11 summers and 83 birds were released there over that time. I had no idea it was that many. Yeah, so, and, but they very quickly dispersed from Rum. One of the things they discovered rabbits in the Isle of Canna and rabbits and hares and other things on Mull. And that's where they're probably more prominent than they are actually on rum. But rum was a good springboard for the species to get established. So it was a really successful project. Yeah. Was there the coverage, the kind of the excitement about that kind of project that there is now when you do that? I mean, oh, huge. Really? Yeah. yeah, it was. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of media interest. We were constantly on the radio or giving interviews to the press or whatever. And this journalist phoned up and said, oh, I believe you've got the new sea eagles. Could I come up and take a photo? I said, yeah, OK, then. He said, but could I, any chance of getting a photo of one of the chicks perched on your finger? <laughs> <laughs> I said, no, they're about three feet tall, for God's sake. In the early days when we were bringing them in, the warden at the time on Rum thought it was a big secret. But, you know, we tried to keep people informed because the people were coming to Rum at then way back because of the early days to try and see them and egg collectors weren't a big problem uh, because they didn't see see white sea eagle ne eggs as a big prize like hmm. golden eagle eggs even so why? Why they didn't because think of they them as real eagles somehow they kind of thought they weren't real mm -hmm. <laughs> and that was very true of many people in the ornithological establishment and it was still there when I moved ospreys to Rutland Water that people thought of them as sort of not real birds because we had, we had translocated them. So the effort to get that white-tailed eagles was just not there compared to golden eagles. It's strange, wasn't mm -hmm. it? Yeah. 
these birds had come from Norway, so they flew into Kinloss, mm-hmm. and then you took them across. The RAF at Kinloss were fantastic. Yeah, I think the very first year, the RAF wouldn't bring you back, John. No, that's right. So the eagles arrived, but not John. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and you had to hitch your way back from Norway. Yeah, I came back by sort of civil <laughs> airline instead of in the Nimrod, and we'd approached the Ministry of Defence in London, Whitehall. And they said, yes, yes, but the Nimrods are full of top-secret equipment. We can't take any civilians. So I got left behind. The following year, Roy had the bright idea of approaching 120 Squadron in Kinloss direct. They said, yes, no problem. So off we went in the Nimrods, and they would explain what all the top-secret equipment (laughs) was. And that was because... There were so many bird watchers at RAF Kinloss. It was a really busy station, <laughs> and they had the RAF Kinloss Ornithological Society. Mm-hmm. And working in the RSPB, they used to ask me down to give lectures in the evening. So I got to know all these guys, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. oh, a great crowd of them. And they just loved it, didn't yeah. they? And some of them on yachting holidays would drop into Rum to see how they were doing and things. And uh, every year, We'd be back to to get more, and they were couldn't it be more helpful. They were wonderful. It was real good fun. And then every time we felt hungry, we'd go to the galley yeah. and cook ourselves up something, mm-hmm. make tea. Mm-hmm. And then when we brought the birds back, all the crew wanted to look at them. Yeah. And, and in the end, they showed us so much that mm-hmm. we could have found Russian submarines. <laughs> and the worst thing was, they would fly out from Kinloss to the North Cape and plot with sonar boys they'd drop uh, any movements of Russian submarines or whatever. And if they found something, even a fishing boat, they could even detect a coke tin floating in the water. They would drop from about three or 4,000 feet to 300 feet to take photos of it. And the guys would wind down the window and lean out and go <laughs> click. And we had two Americans on board. And they said, you would not believe it, but they're taking photos through the window because they had mounted cameras under the plane and all posh equipment they couldn't leave. And then one year, the year of the Falklands War, the RAF couldn't do it. Well, they're otherwise engaged. They were otherwise engaged. And Harold Meesand, who was our contact there, who worked with the Norwegian Air Force, was captain, he organised that the Norwegian Air Force would fly them in for us. So they came in, and then after that, when the Nimrods took over again, they had put in a fuel pipe so that it could refuel in mid-air during the Falklands War. And it ran up the central aisle of the plane, and you had this high-octane fuel <laughs> sort of gushing past you <laughs> under your feet. And it was it was... We had such good fun with them, yeah. and really, it made all the difference. That you could get the birds, or John could get the birds with Harold in Boulder, put them on the plane, fly them straight to Inverness, take the car, and be in Rum that night. It was yeah. just brilliant. And that very first flight in 1975, um, I was loading the Eagles onto the Nimrod, and I had a big box, oh, about two or three feet square, and carried it on, and 
the guys, the crew said, well, is that it? Are that the four chicks? I said, no, that's only one. <laughs> opened it up, God, and you're not coming with us. What if they jump out of the box mid-flight? I said, no, no, they won't do that. They'll lie, doggo. One of the biggest problems for these birds is that the rate of recolonization is very slow. You know, I think the work in Germany and places like that where the population has increased over time. The front <coughs> edge of recolonization is only 10 kilometers a year. And with ospreys, it was less. And so you can either say, well, we'll wait for it all to happen. Or you could say, we will restore it because we killed them out of England or France or Spain. And then you, you jumpstart it. You know, we could have waited in Scotland forever for a few young seagulls to come from Norway and colonise. I think we would have still been waiting. Yeah. A lot of people don't make the distinction between an introduction, which invariably you think of rabbits, you think of God knows all what, that it's a bad idea to bring something in to where it never belonged, whereas bringing it back is a reintroduction and considering that we made it extinct in the first place is totally justified. It was great days and I remember the first time that I really felt that it was working while I was driving to a lecture in Plockton from my office in Manlochy on the Black Isle near Inverness and I came around a corner of Loch Torridon and there's a little inlet there below Ben Shilding oh, yeah, I and um, I could see crows and buzzards kind of all agitated and I stopped and looked down and there was one of John's green tagged white-tailed eagles, the young one perched on a rock and it flew out over the water and it suddenly kind of circled quickly and below it was a mother otter with two cubs and she had a fish in her mouth and he was trying to steal this fish and as soon as he stooped the otters went underwater and then came up and he had another go and then he went back and, and I thought that's really how they're going to live here mm -hmm. and uh, hundreds and hundreds of years before sea eagles would have been stealing food off otters at that very same place yeah. once they became skilled mm -hmm. that was the first time I felt this is really going to work mm -hmm but they take at least five years to mature and I think for the early years there weren't that many around and the, certainly the first year we only had one male out and three females and so it took them quite a few years to get established and then suddenly we had the first pair established in Mull. So 1985 they succeeded and uh, brought off a chick the first Gaelic-speaking sea eagle in Scotland for 70, 80 years. My big moment, I think, when it really sunk in was I was round on a neighbouring island to Rum and I was looking for nests. We knew there were a couple of pairs nesting there. And I went round the bottom of the cliffs and I got so far and I knew there was no beach to go any further. I would have to turn back. And suddenly in that gully at the end, when I was about to turn back, a pair of sea eagles came off the cliffs and they started calling. They've got a loud high-pitched call, almost like a puppy yelping. The males are higher pitched than the females. 
And they started calling. It was echoing around this gully in the cliff. And then that brought off a pair of peregrines that were nesting there. And they were screaming their heads off at the sea eagles. And this was going on. I thought, wow, this is when it's all happened at last. John Love, in conversation with Roy Dennis. If you'd like to hear more about the present-day reintroduction of white-tailed eagles to the Isle of Wight, all our podcasts, starting with the collection of chicks here in Scotland, are on our website, www.roydennis.org. And credit for the music, Realness, goes to Kai Engel, and it's downloadable from the Free Music Archive.